Tonight's episode is brought to you by the Allure of the Unknown, survivalfeeling.com, and you, our listeners. The absence of evidence is not evidence of an absence. A good evening, all of you wayward souls, and welcome back to the Wayward Stories podcast. Wayward Stories is the podcast where we tell stories, all kinds of stories. Mostly we've been telling my stories. We hope to tell your stories. If you have any stories to share with us, please send them to us at mywaywardstory at gmail.com so that we can get you into the program and make you a part of the show. Tonight, we are taking a different turn as per our normal formatting. We are still telling stories. We are still going to be telling stories of the great outdoors. But for the next month, we're going to be telling stories that are a little bit more on the, um, let's say, spooky side. Maybe they're not all going to be spooky, but we're going to cover a lot of things that are mythical and mystical in nature that are related to the great outdoors because it is October. Spooky season is upon us. And I, the wayward son, absolutely love spooky season. It's one of my favorite times of year. I'm not sure why, but I'm just one of those people that very much enjoy that which is unknown. Very much enjoy the possibility of what could be. I've never been one to have to know everything down to the most minute understanding of it. Now, I do like to know as much as possible. I am a voracious reader and seeker of knowledge, but I'm not so arrogant as to think that basically anything can be known in its totality. If there's one thing I've learned in my life, it's that that whole old cliche of the truth is stranger than fiction, many, many times... That's the truth. I've seen it in my own life. I've seen it with my own eyes. And I've just come to understand that it would be arrogant to think that I've ever learned and know for a fact all the truth about one single subject. I've been proven wrong many times over. So I'm a big fan of the things that are a little bit more ethereal, things that are a little bit out there, let's say, on the fringes of what's established thought. So October is here. It is my kind of month. And for the next several episodes, however many we get out this month, which is hopefully one for every single week, we're going to be exploring. We're going to be probing, if you will, into things that are a little bit less static here in the factual world. And we're going to have some fun. If you guys are going to come along for the ride with me this month, the rule that you have to live by is this is the month for the suspension of disbelief. This is the month to allow yourself to just enjoy the mystery and the allure of the unknown in order to fully, fully appreciate all the stories we're going to tell. They're going to be a lot of fun. They're going to be very, very interesting. I hope that they jog your mind and your inquisitive spirit. And you just allow yourself to be a little bit of a kid again for a little while and just enjoy the ride. Um, This is going to be a lot of fun for me. This is really going to be right in my wheelhouse 
what I love more than anything in this whole world is history, mythology, folklore. I've mentioned it before. I love anthropology. I love archaeology because archaeology gives us a lot of the evidence for the anthropology, gives us a lot of the evidence and proves a lot of things are possible that we previously didn't think were possible. There's a lot of fun stuff out there when you go down that rabbit hole, when you chase that trail. Let's say when you decide to take that trail of knowledge, of things that you want to go out and understand and find and experience, um, it opens up a whole world of understanding, make you a lot wiser person and really broaden your horizons. So we're going to have a lot of fun. This is really going to be in my wheelhouse. I'm, I'm going to thoroughly enjoy making these episodes. I hope that you enjoy listening to them as much as I enjoy making them. Um, there's going to be a lot of hypothetical stuff in here. There's going to be a lot of mystical stuff. If you are a straight up hardcore non-believing atheist, you might not enjoy all these episodes, but I hope that you can just kind of let yourself just be a kid again, have a little bit of fun in the spirit of the spooky season. Um, and you know, that said, I guess I should throw in the disclaimer that this is not meant to exclude anyone of any belief system in any way, shape, or form. This is just something I like, something I enjoy, and something that I hope you guys will enjoy with me as we go. Um, This week, episode one, part one of the spooky season here at Wayward Stories, we're going to talk about some, let's say, legendary places. I don't want to say mythical places, because mythical implies that they are nothing but myth. There might be more to that some of these, and I think that's what's going to make these stories fun and why I enjoy them so much, is though even though common understanding, common accepted point of view, is that they do not or most likely do not exist, that's the fun part, is they are open-ended. There is no absolute factual proof that they don't. So kind of leaves the door open for us to have a little bit of fun. So we're going to talk about some legendary places. There, um, there are quite a few throughout the world. There was a couple that I excluded from this episode when I was doing my prep work for it because there was just too much meat on the bone. One of them in particular, the, um, lost city of Z, I believe by a British explorer, um, Fawcett, who wanted to find it. There was an entire movie. There was an entire book. There was entire articles written all about it. Um, it's a mythical city that this man believed he had a bead on back in the 1920s. And even prior to that, for a little while, he made several expeditions there and um, ultimately ended up disappearing, never to be found with no evidence of him after the fact ever to be found in the Amazon rainforest. Um, so that one was huge. There's a lot of info on that one. That one could be an episode all its own, and it looks like one that's been done many times over and has an entire feature-length Hollywood movie made about it. So we did not cover that here tonight, but there's a lot of places like that out there to really titillate and tantalize. Um, but we covered some tonight. We're going to cover some tonight that I think you guys are going to really enjoy, and they are connected directly to adventure out there in the great outdoors and things that really it kind of makes you think like, you know what? I might, might, could possibly find something like this myself. And when we get to the end of today's episode, if you will suspend that disbelief for long enough, we're going to get to a story at the end of the day's episode that will 
kind of remind you and serve as a proof of concept that, you know what, you spend enough time out there, out in the wilderness, out in the backcountry, you just might, you just might find something like this. It could be possible. So let's work on that suspension of disbelief and let's get into our first story of the night. The first story we are going to cover tonight is known as, colloquially, um, big picture, pop culture, in the zeitgeist, as Kincaid's Cave of the Grand Canyon. The whole story that we have about this cave comes from two articles written in the Arizona Gazette in 1909 um, by an unknown author. No byline was given for either one of these articles, but they are absolutely fascinating articles that draw you in, draw the reader in to a magical, mystical world of possibility and it's just absolutely tantalizing. So we're going to talk about Kincaid's Cave of the Grand Canyon tonight. And we're going to start with the very first article. This article ran in the Arizona Gazette on Friday evening, March 12th, 1909. And again, no byline is given. That means for any of you out there that aren't into journalism, no byline means it, who's it written by. There is no byline. We do not know who wrote this article. But this article was titled, G.E. Kincaid Reaches Yuma. G.E. Kincaid of Lewiston, Idaho, arrived in Yuma after a trip from Green River, Wyoming, down the entire course of the Colorado River. He is the second man to make this journey and came alone in a small skiff, stopping at his pleasure to investigate the surrounding country. He left Green River in October, having a small covered boat with oars and carrying a fine camera, with which he secured over 700 views of the river and the canyons, which were unsurpassed. Mr. Kincaid says one of the most interesting features of the trip was passing through the sluiceways at Laguna Dam. He made this perilous passage with only the loss of an oar. Some interesting archaeological discoveries were unearthed, and altogether the trip was of such interest that he will repeat it next winter in the company of friends. And that is the end of the first article. That ran on March 12th, once again, 1909. Of interest about this first article, and many people who've researched this have pointed out that this article serves as almost a setup for the second article that ran some three weeks later on April 5th. Um, that's important. We're going to talk about that after we read the next article, but that is important to note. This article is almost like a teaser. It's almost like a setup. It's almost like it put it into the local population's minds, anyone who received the Arizona Gazette, and prepared them for this next article that would come two or three weeks later, and boy, it's a doozy. This next article is a doozy. And we're going to do a lot of reading here. This one's a lot of fun. Here is the text of the follow-up article, which ran some three weeks later on April 5th, 1909, once again in the Arizona Gazette had multiple headlines. Of them are mysteries of immense rich cavern being brought to life. Jordan is enthused. Remarkable finds indicate ancient people migrated from the Orient. The latest news of the progress of the explorations of what is now regarded by scientists as not only the oldest archaeological discovery in the United States, but one of the most valuable in the world 
which was mentioned some time ago in the Gazette, was brought to the city yesterday by G.E. Kincaid, the explorer who found the great underground citadel of the Grand Canyon during a trip from Green River, Wyoming, down the Colorado in a wooden boat to Yuma several months ago. According to the story related yesterday to the Gazette by Mr. Kincaid, the archaeologist of the Smithsonian Institute, which is financing the explorations, have made discoveries which almost conclusively prove that the race which inhabited the mysterious cavern, hewn in solid rock by human hands, was of oriental origin, possibly from Egypt, tracing back to Ramses. If their theories are borne out by the translation of the tablets engraved with hieroglyphics, the mystery of the prehistoric peoples of North America, their ancient arts, who they were and whence they came, will be solved. Egypt and the Nile and Arizona and the Colorado will be linked by a historical chain running back to ages which staggers the wildest fancy of the fictionist. A thorough investigation. Under the direction of Professor S.A. Jordan, the Smithsonian Institute is now prosecuting the most thorough explorations, which will be continued until the last link in the chain is forged. Nearly a mile underground, almost 1,480 feet below the surface, the long main passage has been delved into to find another mammoth chamber from which radiate scores of passageways. Like the spokes of a wheel, several hundred rooms have been discovered, reached by passageways running from the main passage, one of them having been explored for 854 feet and another 634 feet. The recent finds include articles which have never been known as native to this country, and doubtless they had their origin in the Orient. War weapons, copper instruments, sharp-edged and hard as steel, indicate the high state of civilization reached by these strange peoples. So interested have the scientists become that preparations are being made to equip the camp for extensive studies, and the force will be increased to 30 or 40 persons. Before going further into the cavern, better facilities for lighting will have to be installed, for the darkness is dense and quite impenetrable for the average flashlight. In order to avoid being lost, wires are being strung from the entrance to all passageways leading directly to large chambers. How far this cavern extends, no one can guess, but it is now the belief of many that what has already been explored is merely the barracks, to use an American term, for the soldiers, and that far into the underworld will be found the main communal dwellings of the families. The perfect ventilation of the cavern, the steady draught that blows through, indicates that it has another outlet to the surface. Now, Mr. Kincaid's report. Mr. Kincaid was the first white child born in Idaho and has been an explorer and hunter all of his life, 30 years having been in the service of the Smithsonian. Even briefly recounted, his history sounds fabulous, almost grotesque. First, I would impress that the cavern is nearly inaccessible. The entrance is 1,486 feet down the sheer canyon wall. It is located on government land, and no visitor will be allowed there under penalty of trespass. The scientists wish to work unmolested. A trip there would be fruitless, and the visitor would be sent on his way. The story of how I found the cavern has been related, but in a paragraph, I was journeying down the Colorado River in a boat, alone looking for mineral. Some 42 miles up the river from the El Tovar Crystal Canyon, I saw on the east wall stains in the sedimentary formation about 2,000 feet above the riverbed. There was no trail to this point, but I finally reached it with great difficulty. Above a shelf, which hid it from the view of the river, was the mouth of the cave. There are steps leading from the entrance some 30 yards to what was, at the time the cavern was inhabited, the level of the river. When I saw the chisel marks on the wall inside the entrance, I became interested, securing my gun, and went in. 
During that trip, I went back several hundred feet along the main passage till I came to the crypt in which I discovered the mummies. One of these I stood up and photographed by flashlight. I gathered a number of relics, which I carried down the Colorado to Yuma, from whence I shipped them to Washington with details of the discovery. Following this, the explorations were undertaken. The Passages A main passageway is about 12 feet wide, narrowing to 9 feet towards the further end. About 57 feet from the entrance, the first side passages branch off to the right and left, along which, on both sides, are a number of rooms about the size of ordinary living rooms of today, though some are 30 by 40 feet square. These are entered by oval-shaped doors and are ventilated by round air spaces through the walls into the passages. The walls are about 3 feet 6 inches in thickness. The passageways are chiseled or hewn as straight as could be laid out by an engineer. The ceilings of many of the rooms converge to a center. The side passages near the entrance run at a sharp angle from the main hall, but toward the rear they gradually reach a right angle in direction. The Shrine Over a hundred feet from the entrance is the cross hall, several hundred feet long, in which are found the idol or image of the people's god, sitting cross-legged with a lotus flower or lily in each hand. The cast of the face is oriental, and the carving shows a skillful hand and the entire image is remarkably well preserved, as is everything in this cavern. The idol most resembles Buddha, though the scientists are not certain as to what religious worship it represents. Taking into consideration everything found thus far, it is possible that this worship most resembles the ancient people of Tibet. Surrounding this idol are smaller images, some very beautiful in form, others crooked-necked and distorted shapes, symbolic, probably, of good and evil. There are two large cactus with protruding arms, one on each side of the dais on which the god squats. All this is carved out of hard rock resembling marble. In the opposite corner of this cross hall were found tools of all descriptions made of copper. These people undoubtedly knew the lost art of hardening this metal, which has been sought by chemists for centuries without result. On a bench running around the workroom was some charcoal and other material probably used in the process. There is also slag and stuff similar to mat, showing that these ancient smelted ores, but so far no trace of where or how this was done has been discovered, nor the origin of the ore. Among the other finds are vases or urns and cups of copper and gold made very artistic in design. The pottery work includes enameled ware and glazed vessels. Another passageway leads to granaries, such are found in oriental temples. They contain seeds of various kinds. One very large storehouse has not yet been entered, and it is 12 feet high and can be reached only from above. Two copper hooks extend on the edge, which indicates that some sort of ladder was attached. These granaries are rounded, as the materials of which they are constructed, I think, is a very hard cement. A gray metal is also found in this cavern, which puzzles the scientist, for its identity has not yet been established. It resembles platinum. Strown promiscuously over the floor everywhere are what people call cat's eyes, a yellow stone of no great value. Each one is engraved with the head of the Malay type. The Hieroglyphics On all of the urns are walls over doorways, and tablets of stone which were found of the image are the mysterious hieroglyphics the key to which the Smithsonian Institute hopes yet to discover. The engraving on the tablets probably has something to do with the religion of the people. Similar hieroglyphics have been found in southern Arizona. Among the pictorial writings, only two animals are found. One is a prehistoric type. The Crypt The tomb or crypt in which the mummies were found is one of the largest chambers, the walls slanting back at an angle of about 35 degrees. 
On these are tiers of mummies, each one occupying a separate hewn shelf. At the head of each is a small bench, on which is found copper cups and pieces of broken swords. Some of the mummies are covered in clay, and all are wrapped in a bark fabric. The urns or cups on the lower tiers are crude, while as the higher shelves are reached, the urns are finer in design. Showing a later stage of civilization, it is worthy of note that all the mummies examined so far have proved to be male, no children or females being buried here. This leads to the belief that this exterior section was the warrior's barracks. Among the discoveries, no bones of animals have been found, no skins, no clothing, no bedding. Many of the rooms are bare but for water vessels. One room, 40 by 700 feet, was probably the main dining hall, for cooking utensils are found here. What these people lived on is a problem, though it is presumed that they came south in the winter and farmed in the valleys, going back north in the summer. Upwards of 50,000 people could have lived in the caverns comfortably. One theory is that the present Indian tribes found in Arizona are descendants of the serfs or slaves of the people which inhabited the cave. Undoubtedly, a good many thousands of years before the Christian era, a people lived here which reached a high stage of civilization. The chronology of human history is full of gaps. Professor Jordan is much enthused over the discoveries and believes that the find will prove of incalculable value in archaeological work. One thing I have not spoken of may be of interest. There is one chamber of the passageway to which is not ventilated, and when we approached it, a deadly, snaky smell struck us. Our lights would not penetrate the gloom, and until stronger ones are available, we will not know what the chamber contains. Some say snakes, but others boo-hoo this idea and think it may contain a deadly gas or chemicals used by the ancients. No sounds are heard, but it smells snaky just the same. The whole underground installation gives one of shaky nerves the creeps. The gloom is like a weight on one's shoulders, and our flashlights and candles only make the darkness blacker. Imagination can revel in conjectures and ungodly daydreams back through the ages that have elapsed till the mind reels dizzily in space. An Indian Legend In connection with this story, it is noticeable that among the Hopi Indians, the tradition is told that their ancestors once lived in an underworld in the Grand Canyon till dissension arose between the good and the bad, the people of one heart and the people of two hearts. Machetto, who was their chief, counseled them to leave the underworld, but there was no way out. The chief then caused the tree to grow up and pierced the roof of the underworld, and then the people of one heart climbed out. They tarried by Pasisivai, or the Red River, which is the Colorado, and grew grain and corn. They sent out a message to the Temple of the Sun asking the blessings of peace and goodwill and rain for the people of one heart. That messenger never returned, but today at the Hopi villages at sundown can be seen the old men of the tribe out on the housetops gazing towards the sun, looking for the messenger. When he returns, their lands and ancient dwelling place will be restored to them. That is the tradition. Among the engravings in the cave is seen the image of a heart over the spot where it is located. The legend was learned by W.E. Rollins, the artist, during a year spent with the Hopi Indians. There are two theories of the origin of the Egyptians. One is that they came from Asia, and that the racial cradle was in the Upper Nile region. Heron, an Egyptologist, believed in the Indian origins of the Egyptians. The discoveries in the Grand Canyon may throw further light on human evolution in prehistoric ages. That is the end of the article. There are a lot of things to talk about here. One thing we have to address is... This was written in 1909 at a different time in society. This was way before PC culture. This was way before cancel culture. 
this was way before our current standard that is ever evolving of recognizing and legitimizing and respecting other people's beliefs and cultures was. It was very much obviously a white centric point of view. Like why does it need to point out he was the first white child born in Lewiston, Idaho? I don't know if that was meant to establish his intelligence because he's a white guy or if it was just meant to, you know, add more color to the backstory and make him a more relatable human and possibly even try to give some credibility to his many years as explorer that follows directly after in the passage. And it may just be saying that like, this is how long this guy's been around and how far back he goes. Like he was the first European descendant person born into those territories, which takes it way back. Maybe it was just meant to establish credibility, but that's probably giving it too much credit. And it was probably just from that point of view of the time frame, which we have to take with, well, I don't want to say a grain of salt. That's not the right thing to say, but we have to take it for that's how it was. It's how it is back then. And we just kind of have to accept it for what it was because we can't change what was. We can only change ourselves as we move forward, which we are working on doing as a society. But moving on back to the story, what's fascinating about Kincaid's Cave of the Grand Canyon, this has been dug into by many, many notable people many skeptics and people who want to believe in it alike. And if you go and research it for yourself, you're going to find people who are just dead out saying absolutely factually proven does not exist. And then you're going to have people saying, here's all the proof that it does exist. It's a fact. And both will talk about it. Like their point of view is proven beyond a shadow of a doubt, but here's the truth. There is no point of view proven beyond a shadow of a doubt. You cannot prove something doesn't exist right? The absence of evidence is not evidence of an absence, correct? Um, but you also can't prove that it is. And if you go look, any of you that go out there and look, you will find pictures on the internet that say these pictures are taken of the artifacts that were found. These pictures are pictures of the cave. None of those are, none of them are. No one has ever conclusively found anything like that's the other side of the propaganda about this. What's fascinating about this story, though, is a byline was never given. Professor S.A. Jordan nor G.E. Kincaid can be traced or found in any genealogies anywhere. They most likely, probably, unfortunately, didn't exist. But because it is spooky month and we are suspending our disbelief here, what works in our favor is that nobody has ever been able to conclusively prove or disprove the existence of this fascinating, fascinating idea of a cave that could exist somewhere in the vast expanses in the depths of the Grand Canyon, yet to be rediscovered someday. Um, there are many caves in the Grand Canyon. Most of them are gated shut, as are many of our caves here in Arkansas. Like, guys, this thing is a whole thing. Like, okay, I'm not going to take a side on it, other than to say it's fun to enjoy the thought that it could exist. And this was written at a time when the West was still very much not unexplored, but less explored than it is today. There were a lot less people on this continent in 1909 than there are today. There were a whole lot less automobiles. Like there was maybe exactly 10 Model T's out there somewhere. God, I don't know cars well enough. Maybe the Model T, maybe it's Model A's. Maybe it's Model A's. I don't know. People weren't exploring the world like this nearly as much as they do today. We didn't have nearly as much access. This 
harkens back to a time that there's much more of a mystical point of view, more of a mystery, more of an allure to what's out there that is unknown. And I love that because it brings back a nostalgic point of view of that time frame. And also, like I said, it's never been proven or disproven. So we can enjoy the thought of the possibility of a place like Kincaid's Cave that houses mysteries yet unknown that could explore our origins, many of our origins. And it's just a fascinating point of view. There was a lot of other things in this article that were wrong with it. Like, in my opinion, anyway, like just assuming that the Hopi are the ancestors of the slaves of whoever was in that cave. Like, you can't make that assertion. Like, there's nothing whatsoever to base that on whatsoever. And it was a very white centric point of view back then. By far, it absolutely was. Can't get around that. But the story itself is absolutely fascinating. It makes your mind wonder about the world. Like, what else is there that we don't know about? What if something like this could exist? And that's why I love the story of Kincaid's Cave so much. Because, again, never proven, never disproven. And I think the most fascinating and interesting part about it is... What's mostly speculated, and to be honest, is probably accurate, is that it was a April Fool's joke. This was written during a time when a thing called yellow journalism was happening. And what yellow journalism was, is it all it had to do with was the color the papers were printed on. But that's when, like, okay, what we see today in, like, those crazy tabloid magazines, you know, like the ones that have, like, Bat Boy and National Enquirer and, you know, Race of alien lizard people running a shadow government you see on the newsstands that kind of stuff was actually being printed in legitimate newspapers to try to increase readership and there was also a gentleman joseph mulhattan who was famous for writing stories exactly like this in newspapers around the world um or the united states rather and the fascinating thing is about this, though, even though that's most likely the explanation of what exists there in the Grand Canyon, no one ever took credit for it. Who pulls an April Fool's joke and doesn't out it later and say, ah, I gotcha. Who pulls a joke like this and doesn't take credit? Who writes an enormously fascinating story like this and takes no credit for it? That's what I think is the seed of all the... That's the seed of why this story is still out there in the zeitgeist and still exists as something people hope that they can believe in to some degree is because no one ever took credit. There was no pin. This was never nicely wrapped up in a bow and set aside as, okay, we have an explanation that is the most likely um, and satisfying explanation. We do have a most likely explanation, but it's not evidenced by anything other than trying to use common sense and logic. No one took credit for it. This story still exists out there as an open-ended story for us to suspend our disbelief here at Wayward Stories in the spooky season and enjoy the thoughts of what could be. Now we are going to take our break for tonight, take our sponsor break, and then we'll come back with another story of a place that might just exist somewhere out there deep in the desert, to fascinate and enchant you with. I want to take a second to tell you guys about tonight's sponsor, Survival Feeling. Survival Feeling is a hiking brand based in Greece, and they offer an assortment of gear that's aimed towards the goal of helping you better enjoy your time outside. And that is, of course, what we are all about here at Wayward Stories. 
I really like this company for a lot of reasons, but chief amongst them is that they were founded with giving back to the community in mind. They donate a portion of all proceeds to organizations like the Wildland Firefighters Foundation to help support those who work to keep us all safe while we're out there trying to find ourselves. We've partnered with them to bring you guys a unique coupon code that will save you wayward souls 15% off of your order. Go to survivalfeeling.com and use offer code waywardstories at checkout. I think you guys will like what they have to offer and what they're all about just as much as I do. Once again, that's survivalfeeling.com and use the offer code waywardstories. Welcome back, guys. Thank you for supporting our sponsors. And we're going to get back to tonight's stories. Our next story. This one is fascinating to me. I love this next story because... Unlike Kincaid's cave, where nobody in it was ever proven to exist, some of these people did exist and had some very interesting endings to their lives. This story also fascinates me because I've never heard of it until I started researching for this month's episodes and I started putting together my outline of what I wanted to do and how I wanted to do it this month. This guy popped out of nowhere and this one's got some meat on the bones. This one is fascinating and I, it just blows my mind. I've never heard of it because I very much live in the world of folklore and mythology and um, legends and tales. Like that's just like I said at the beginning, that's my wheelhouse. Those are the things I love in the world in a different world with actual opportunities in my life. I would have been an anthropologist or an archaeologist or probably a mixture of both. So this story fascinated me because I'd never heard of it. But not just that. It's such a big story. There's so much here. It's not like a one-off blurb that can easily get lost in the sands of time. This is a big old story, y'all. So let's just get right to it. Let's tear into it. This is the tale of the hidden city beneath Death Valley. All of the information I'm about to present to you in order to give proper citation was taken from the original newspaper articles from a gentleman named David Johannick for thelivingmoon.com, and also Kathy Weiser Alexander of Legends of America. So this is all a big conglomeration of information I pulled from them, some direct quotes from them, and then my extrapolations upon it. So not trying to infringe no copyrights, y'all. Don't come at me too hard. All right. The tale of the hidden city beneath Death Valley. In the 1920s, a prospector named White claimed he had fallen through the floor of an abandoned mine at Wingate Pass in the southwest corner of Death Valley, into an underground tunnel. Going deeper into the labyrinth, he came to a group of rooms where he found hundreds of leather-clad human mummies surrounded by gold bars and other treasures. The rooms and a tunnel that extended deeper into the catacombs were lit with a pale greenish light of unknown origin. However, White did not follow the tunnels deeper into the unknown. He claimed he had explored the catacombs two more times after his initial find, and during his second visit, he was accompanied by his wife, and on the third, by a prospector named Fred Thomason. Alright, so this gets a little complicated. I'm now going to read a detailed version of this prospector named White's story and his buddy Fred Thomason and his wife. Now, this is a more detailed version from a different website. The reason it gets complicated is another website lists this story as written by two other men who were in contact with the Whites and Thomason. And I think I know what went on there, but I'm going to read them in succession and kind of give you the differentiation of what's where. 
This story is the story um, from the perspective of White and Thomason being the finders. All right. Burke Lee, Death Valley historian and author of the book Death Valley Men, first described the city in 1932 in the following passage. One night, Fred White, his wife, and their partner Thomason stumbled into a cabin of miners named Jack and Bill. The visitors complained of car trouble. Thomason ventured back to Los Angeles for parts, leaving White and his wife with the miners. Jack and Bill noted that when Thomason returned, he came with a rather large roll of cash. After some debate, the three decided to tell the miners exactly what they were doing in Death Valley. Some years earlier, White, while prospecting in an abandoned shaft near Wingate Pass, fell through the shaft's floor. He found himself in a long, natural cavern. It leads all through a great underground city, through the treasure vaults, the royal palace, and the council chambers, and it connects to a series of beautiful galleries with stone arches in the east slope of the Panamint Mountains. Those arches are like big windows in the side of the mountain, and they look down on the valley below, which is Death Valley. Jack and Bill looked into White's eyes. White stared back with a look of madness. White's look wasn't the incoherent glare of a lunatic, no. He believed in what he claimed to have found. White's madness was the glee of someone striking it rich. Why don't you start at the beginning, Jack asked. Fred White rose in the cavern, dusted himself off, and peered into the inky blackness. Looking around his small circle of light, he saw climbing out was impossible. Having only one choice, White crept into the unknown. Inch by inch, he made his way down a natural cavern. At certain places, he felt the unmistakable impressions of tool marks. Had he stumbled into another mine? After hours of clamoring, White's hand slipped off of the cavern wall. He fell forward. The wall came to an end, but luckily the floor did not. This was no longer the floor of a cave. It was smooth, almost polished. Reaching into his pack, White pulled out a candle. Having only a few, he hadn't dared light one, and now a combination of curiosity and necessity forced him to strike a match. White's jaw dropped when the candle light illuminated a table. Inlaid with jewels, they glittered in the dim light. He brushed away the dust of unknown years, revealing a table of polished stone, smooth as glass and reflective as a mirror. Running his fingers along the line of encrusted jewels on the table's edge, White bumped into something blocking his path. Looking up, White saw that he was not alone. He screamed, dropping the lit candle. Rolling down the table, the candle illuminated a grim gathering. Around the table they sat, dried flesh stretched tight over ancient bones. White staggered backwards and lost control. His arms searched the darkness to find the cavern from which he had came. His fingers found arms, legs, and faces. He composed himself, realizing that these bodies were dead. They could not hurt him. Stumbling over a strange lever in the floor, White lit another candle. Turning the lever, a sudden burst of flame singed his eyebrows. Other bursts surrounded the circumference of the room. The illumination of gas lights, for the first time, revealed the full extent of his discovery. White counted at least 100 mummified corpses. Some sat at the long table. Others stood like guards around the chamber, propped up by golden spears and shields. Most laid in heaps on the floor. They wore leather clothing. Some wore jewels adorned leather aprons and gold armbands. Something even more astounding drew his attention. Above him towered the image of a man, or perhaps a god, made of solid gold. Fred White would make two more trips to the lost city, joined by his partner Thomason, and once with his wife. 
They found stone doors balanced so that you can move them with your little finger if you find the right place. They ascended passages, reaching high into the mountains, leading to these large windows overlooking Death Valley. The party developed an astounding theory. They're high above the valley now, but we believe that those entrances in the mountainside were used by the ancient people that built the city, and they used to land their boats here. The explorers hoped to attract scientific interest to their find. White claimed the Smithsonian Institute offered him a million and a half dollars for the discovery. Another quote-unquote government man expressed interest but wanted proof. What proof White had was lost when a friend with whom they left several artifacts, as well as gold and jewels, disavowed any knowledge of these artifacts. Swindled out of their proof, the treasure hunters retrieved more relics, this time burying them near the cavern entrance. Returning to Death Valley, on what was to be their fourth trip to the lost city, the explorers found a drastically changed area. A storm destroyed several landmarks used to locate the caverns. White's party decided that their only hope to locate the city was to climb to the windows overlooking Death Valley. The treasure hunters were last seen patching a tire near their destination. Jack, Bill, and the other miners searched for them. No trace of White, his wife, Thomason, or their car was ever found. Okay, of interesting things to note about this, there's a couple of fascinating things. One is, Death Valley was absolutely a lake at some point. How deep it was is open to conjecture. Um, the geologists probably have the answers to that, but Death Valley absolutely had a lake within it at one point, far, far, far back in history. Not super far back. We're talking like Pleistocene. We're talking about like last ice age type of time frame, somewhere in there. Um, so there could be some plausibility to their idea that those big stone arches were actually the entranceway at one point in time. Um, also to note is these were, you know, real human beings. They ran into these guys, Jack and Bill, and clearly what's not relayed in the story here, but what I can gather from everything I've read is because this story starts with them telling the story to Jack and Bill and then ends with them dying. So they didn't tell the story of their own death to Jack and Bill. So something went funky here in the translation. What I believed happened was that story is supposed to have ended at some point in this retelling from this book and come back with they fixed the car, went on their way and essentially disappeared into the vast desert, never to be seen again, because we see here that Jack, Bill and other miners searched for them, but no trace of them was ever found. They were real humans after something very real, and they clearly died in the pursuit of it. So that adds some validity to the claim of this story. But that's not the only thing that adds some validity to the claim of this story. There are other stories to go along with it that we're about to get into. But I do want to point out real quick that this other story, it's given in another article by a different website about Jack and Bill. And I want to read that. So what I believe is going on here is there's a whole lot of copy and paste going on here amongst all these websites because it's so hard to find original source materials. Because what I have here in front of me, the next story I wanted to give along with the story of White and Thomason was essentially the same story. But in this story, Jack and Bill are credited as the finders of the cave. I don't believe that's proper. I believe this is the story of Thomason, his wife. And um, the other cat that we were talking about just a few minutes ago, White, White, his wife and the, the man named Thomason. But it's been transfixed over onto 
Jack and Bill. So I'm going to tell you part of Jack and Bill's story because it has a little bit better detail in a shorter fashion than the other story did. And maybe that will give us a fuller picture of what um, this white guy with his wife and partner Thomason found. These two men eventually arrived at a large ancient underground room where they reportedly found several perfectly preserved human mummies, which were adorned with thick armbands and held gold spears. Further, they said that the cavern rooms were illuminated by a system of lights fed by subterranean gases, and the rooms were filled with treasure. This time, however, the reports of the riches were more descriptive, with the men claiming to have found large statues of gold, stone vaults, drawers filled with gold bars and gemstones, and beautifully polished round table. Further, the story described the perfectly balanced heavy stone wheelbarrows and huge stone doors, which were perfectly balanced by counterweights. After finding this incredulous room, the two men carried off a few artifacts and some treasure before continuing their journey into this tunnel, which inclined upwards to a point that opened about halfway up the eastern slope of the Panamint Mountains. When the two men returned, they displayed the treasures they had brought down, which they hoped might lure archaeologists to the site. But in this tale, like so many others involving hidden riches, there would be a twist in the plan. Allegedly, a friend made off with the artifacts, and when the two men tried to lead experts back to the mine opening, they were unable to locate it once again. Jack and Bill claimed that a recent rainstorm had altered and rearranged the terrain. Like former discoverers, these two were also determined to find the cavern entrance and were allegedly last seen preparing to climb the east face of the Panamint Mountains, after which they were never heard from again. Okay, so those are the same exact story. This guy's trying to give credit to it being a second story, almost identical to the first. Well, that's because it is identical to the first. It just got somewhere in that historical game of telephone, as we mentioned in the tellings and retellings and really the copies and the pastes here on the Internet. The same story got, what would you say, assigned to Jack and Bill. It's the same exact story, clearly exactly the same story. And Jack and Bill exist in the first story. But I wanted to read it because... One of the two is likely, more likely to be the actual story. So I want you to have both of them to listen to. And also it gives a little bit more detail uh, than the first one did. So we get a fuller picture of this original story about the discoverers, White, his wife, Fred Thomason, and then also Jack and Bill, who supposedly went looking for him after the fact. Those people were never seen again, whether it's Jack and Bill or White and his companions, but they were real humans that really went missing in search of the city that they were convinced was there. You have to take that into account to some degree for credibility. Do you not? Because who would go searching for something over and over again until they get lost in the mountains and die if they did not truly fully believe it was there? The whole point is, I don't think this story was originally a hoax. Maybe it was overblown. Maybe they were going off an older story that they had heard previously and had a full conviction that it was there having never seen it for themselves. That's also a possibility, but we believe we have to given the under the evidence that we have that they either saw something or knew of something that had them convinced something was really there because they died trying to find it. Therefore, we don't believe this to be a hoax story just for the fun of telling a story. People died looking for this thing. So there is more evidence to this, though. And some of it goes back just a little bit further. This actually happened around the time Thomason was telling his story to the public. 
Thomason and the man White. I don't think White was ever given a first name. He's not a white man. He probably was a white man, but his last name is White. And I don't have a first name for him. And that bugs me. I would just assign him a name to make this easier for all of us. But this will go down into the internet archive somewhere. And it'll further muddy a very muddy story. So this prospector named White, his wife and his buddies, while he was telling these stories, someone heard about this, a Paiute Indian named Tom Wilson. And he worked as a trapper and a guide. And he told a somewhat similar story. He claimed that his grandfather had discovered the below-ground caverns of Death Valley many, many years before. As he told the tale, his grandfather had gone down into the cave that led to numerous tunnels and large rooms beneath the valley floor. After wandering for miles, his grandfather had come to an underground city where he found a group of fair-skinned people that spoke an unknown language and wore leather-like clothing. He also said that the people had horses, were sustained by food he had never seen before, and that the pale, green, yellowish lights illuminated their city. The Indian, after having gone missing for some time, finally returned home to tell his people of his discovery. Upon hearing his story, most of them were dubious about the authenticity of his adventure, but his grandson, Tom Wilson, absolutely believed this tale, to the point that Tom Wilson searched for the rest of his life for this underground city until he passed away in 1968. Um, so there's just a little bit more fuel to the fire, more possible, possible evidence to the idea of an underground hidden city beneath Death Valley. But wait, there's more. This is not the end of the tale. There is one more story about this that we are about to get into. In early August 1947, a man named Howard E. Hill of Los Angeles, California, spoke before the city's transportation club and told a sensational story. The tale described the work of a man named Dr. F. Bruce Russell, who claimed to have discovered a series of complex tunnels deep below Death Valley in 1931. Russell, a retired Cincinnati, Ohio physician, and a colleague named Dr. Daniel S. Bovee, who had worked with on archaeological excavations in Mexico several years earlier, allegedly stumbled upon these caves quite by accident. Russell, who had reportedly moved west for his health, decided to check out mining opportunities. According to the tell, while Russell was sinking a shaft for a mining claim, he fell into a cave when the soil gave way and discovered a catacomb of tunnels leading off into different directions. When Russell and Bovee began to explore the caverns, they followed one tunnel where they were extremely surprised to find the mummified remains of three gigantic men who were eight to nine feet tall. The giants were clothed in garments consisting of medium-length jackets and trousers extending slightly below the knees. The material's texture was said to resemble gray-dyed sheepskin, but they believed it to be taken from an animal that is unknown to us today. The room also held several artifacts that resembled Egyptian and American Indian designs, and hieroglyphics were chiseled on carefully polished granite. The explorers believed that they had found the burial place of the tribe's hierarchy. Following another tunnel, they came across what they described as a ritual hall of these ancient peoples. Here, they once again found artifacts and markings in the well-preserved remains of animals, including dinosaurs, elephants, and tigers. Later, it was suggested that perhaps these bones belonged to an ancient saber-toothed tiger and mammoth. Further, Russell had described to Hill that he and Bovee had only touched the surface of their discovery, stating that there were at least 32 tunnels and estimating that they ran across 180 square miles of Death Valley and parts of southern Nevada. Professional archaeologists were skeptical of the story, and Los Angeles County Museum scientists pointed out that 
dinosaurs and saber-toothed tigers appeared on the earth 10 to 13 million years apart. No one in the professional world of archaeology was interested enough in the story to check it out personally. Now that's fascinating because this is on record. These are two real people. These guys, absolutely real humans, because I am now going to read to you the original article that ran on August 5th, 1947 in the San Diego Union about the story I just told you. Los Angeles, August 4th, AP. A retired Ohio doctor has discovered relics of an ancient civilization whose men were eight or nine feet tall in the Colorado desert near the Arizona-Nevada-California line, an associate said today. Howard E. Hill of Los Angeles, speaking before the Transportation Club, disclosed that several well-preserved mummies were taken yesterday from caverns in an area roughly 180 miles square, extending through much of southern Nevada from Death Valley, California, across the Colorado River into Arizona. Hill said the discoverer is Dr. F. Bruce Russell, retired Cincinnati physician, who stumbled on the first of several tunnels in 1931, soon after coming west and deciding to try, decided to try mining for his health. Not until this year, however, did Dr. Russell go into the situation thoroughly, he told the luncheon. With Dr. Daniel S. Bovee of Los Angeles, who with his father helped open up New Mexico's cliff dwellings, Dr. Russell has found mummified remains together with implements of the civilization, which Dr. Bovee had tentatively placed at about 80,000 years old. These giants are clothed in garments consisting of a medium-length jacket and trousers extending slightly below the knee, said Hill. The texture of the material is said to resemble a gray, dyed sheepskin, but obviously it was taken from an animal unknown today. Markings Discovered Hill said that in another cavern was found the ritual hall of the ancient people, together with devices and markings similar to those now used by the Masonic Order. In a long tunnel were well-preserved remains of animals, including elephants and tigers. So far, Hill added, no women have been found. He said that the explorers believe what they have found was the burial place of the tribe's hierarchy. So that is the story, the news report itself, from 1947 in the San Diego Union. So real humans, real humans doing a real thing. Nobody took them seriously, but there is a conclusion to that story, and it is this. Despite scientist disinterest, Dr. Russell and a group of investors created a corporation called Amazing Explorations Incorporated to handle the release and hopefully profit from this remarkable find. But in the constantly shifting sands of the deceiving desert, Russell was able to find the site the next time he tried to show his friends. Afterward, Russell disappeared. Months later, Russell's car was found abandoned with a burst radiator in a remote area of Death Valley, and his suitcase was still in the car. Dr. Russell was never found. Dr. Russell died in pursuit of this lost city that he was convinced he had seen with his own eyes, just as did the prospector White, his friend Thomason, and his wife, and possibly many others. I know old Tom the Paiute, Native American, died looking for it, not in the process of looking for it, but he spent his whole life up until his death looking for it. So there's some fascinating stuff right there about a hidden city beneath Death Valley. And there's real human beings that went looking for it and real human beings that died trying to find it, so convinced that it was there. So that's fascinating. That just wets the whistle, doesn't it? That just really piques the interest of what could be our minds desire and love of that which we don't know, that which is yet to be discovered. Um, 
And there may be some basis for it even further back. And we're not going to read this entire story, but it could be that it's based in the legend of something much, much older. And it is a Paiute legend of the kingdom of Shinoav, which means God's land or the ghost land. And it is a sacred place to the Paiute. It is in the oral history, the oral traditions of the Paiute. And it is about a quote unquote, you know, mystical, supernatural place below Death Valley, a city below Death Valley. But one thing that I know for a fact, though it is ascribed by the Paiute as being a supernatural place, a place of origin, a place where the gods reside, many of those kinds of stories. And number one, who are we to say that the Paiute gods don't reside there? I don't know the Paiute gods and neither do you. Only they know that. Again, let us not be so arrogant as to think we know the way everything in this world works. Let us not be that arrogant. One thing I know for a fact that I've come across in my life, the one thing I know for a fact is that I do not factually know much of anything. Many, many things are stranger than we could ever imagine. So, number one, let's respect that. But secondarily to that, many of the legends that come up in Native American oral traditions have seeds of truth and are describing things that really exist and they have ascribed their belief systems into them but are real physical things out there in the world. So there could be evidence in the story of the kingdom of Shinoav in the Paiute tradition of some kind of something, some kind of cave, some kind of complex that exists below the surface of the Valley of Death, as they say. So anyway, I find all of that absolutely fascinating. I believe the second story, I believe the second story has a lot more possibility of validity than the first. But again, it is October and we are suspending our disbelief to have a good time with the month of October during the spooky season. Um, and to hammer home my point, this episode is getting really long. I expected it would because, again, this stuff's my wheelhouse. I love this kind of stuff. I knew I would run long and we have. But to punctuate my point that we do not know what could be out there, that we do not know what could exist. I'm about to read you a story of a hidden underground place, a cave that could be considered. I mean, you could call it a city because it was absolutely inhabited by many, many people many, many years ago. But we're going to go over this because this is a real thing that really happened in real life and is well documented. And you can go see all the pictures, all the images of all the things that have been documented inside this cave. And it follows along really with the two stories we've already heard, except this one is real and it is a little bit less glamorous. There isn't nearly as much um, material wealth hidden away in this one, but this one is proof of concept. And I love proof of concept. And this is proof of concept that we shouldn't be so arrogant as to think that something this massive could exist and us not know about it in the modern era. This is the story of Chauvet Cave in France. On Sunday, the 18th of December in 1994, on the Cirque d'Estrade, Jean-Marie Chauvet led his two friends, Eliot Brunel and Christian Hilaire, towards the cliffs. A slight breeze coming out of a small hole at the end of a little cave drew his attention and he wanted to investigate. All three of them are passionate speleologists and have had countless discoveries in first. It was late afternoon and the little cave into which they entered was already known, but located very close to a major hiking trail. 
But there, behind the fallen rocks, they were sure that there was something, so they dug and unblocked a passage, and then slipped inside. They found themselves looking out over a dark, empty space. They did not have the equipment to continue. It was already dark, and they went back to their vehicles to get the essentials, and after hesitating a little, they eventually returned to their discovery. They used their speleological ladder to descend and discovered a vast chamber with a very high roof filled with splendid, glimmering concretions. They pushed on in a single file towards another, equally vast chamber and admired the unexpected geologic beauty around them. They also noticed animal bones. They explored almost the whole network, and on their way back, Elliot noticed a small red ochre mammoth on a rocky pendant in the beam of her headlamp. They were here, she cried out, and from then on, they carefully looked at all the walls, discovering hundreds of paintings and engravings. So what is inside Chauvet's cave that was just discovered in 1994? 1994, guys, not that long ago. Not that long ago. What's inside? The soft clay-like floor of the cave retains the paw prints of cave bears along with large rounded depressions that are believed to be the nests where the bears slept. Fossilized bones are abundant and include the skulls of cave bears and the horned skull of an ibex. A set of footprints of a young child and a wolf or a dog walking side by side were found in this cave. This information suggests the origin of the domestic dog could date to before the last ice age. Hundreds of animal paintings have been cataloged, depicting at least 13 different species, including some rarely or never found in other Ice Age paintings. Rather than depicting only the familiar herbivores that predominate in Paleolithic cave art, horses, oryx, mammoths, etc., the walls of the Chauvet Cave feature many predatory animals. An example, cave lions, leopards, bears, and cave hyenas. There are also paintings of rhinoceroses. Typical of most cave art, there are no paintings to complete human figures, although there is one partial Venus figure composed of what appears to be the female repro reproductive organs attached to an incomplete pair of legs. Above this Venus and in contact with it is a bison head, which has led some to describe the composite drawing as a minotaur. There are a few panels of red ochre handprints and hand stencils made by blowing pigment over hands pressed against the cave surface. Abstract markings, lines, and dots are found throughout the cave. There are also two unidentifiable images that have a vaguely butterfly or avian shape to them. This combination of subjects has led some students of prehistoric art and cultures to believe that there was a ritual, shamanic, or magical aspect to these paintings. One drawing, later overlaid with a sketch of a deer, is reminiscent of a volcano spewing lava, similar to the regional volcanoes that were active at the time. If confirmed, this would represent the earliest known drawing of a volcanic eruption. The artist who produced these paintings used techniques rarely, rarely found in other cave art. Many of the paintings appear to have been made only after the walls were scraped clear of debris and concretions, leaving a smoother, noticeably lighter area upon which the artist worked. Similarly, a three-dimensional quality and the suggestion of movement are achieved by incising or etching around the outlines of certain figures. The art is also exceptional for its time for including scenes, e.g. animals interacting with other animals. A pair of woolly rhinoceroses, for example, are seen budding horns in an apparent contest for territory or mating rights. This is the Chauvet Cave, not entered for over likely 25,000 years. 
carbon dating, multiple, multiple sets of carbon dating alongside of other known rock arts from the time that this is expected to be from date this cave to between 32,000 BC and 35, 36,000 BC. That is what's roughly accepted. This is a major known archaeological site and it was a tiny cave that nobody had entered in 20,000 years or longer that was found recently and is found to discover tons and tons and tons of cultural artifacts from a time far, far distant from us and offered in this episode thus as proof of concept that things like Kincaid's cave or the hidden city beneath Death Valley, that there could be truth to them. There could be a possibility of them existed. And I want to put that out there and throw it in as we suspend our disbelief this month here at Wayward Stories and enjoy the possibility of the unknown. Because out there in the wilderness on our adventures, we might happen into and find many, many things of great interest. And I've always got my eyes open. You never know, guys, when you might be the next person to find some ancient Native American rock art or something that could change everything as we know it. You never know what you could run into out there. And I offer it tonight in our first installment of the spooky season of Legendary Cities. Next week will be a different topic, and all the weeks hereafter will be a different topic until we wrap up October. I hope you guys have enjoyed tonight's episode. I hope that it came off. I hope it flowed. I've never done this much reading at one time in one of our episodes. I am conversational in our episodes, and I basically read all night tonight. And let me tell you, peek behind the curtain, it's going to take me all damn night to edit this because I stumbled on my words and coughed and had to swallow and did all these things that I don't want y'all to see or hear so many times in the recording of tonight's episode, mostly stumbling on words. Those words just run together into a blur on the page. There's going to be a lot of editing, so I hope tonight's episode ended up flowing okay. I hope that you found it interesting, and I hope that it sparked your imagination, and I hope you were able to suspend your disbelief with me tonight for a little while, and I hope that it will entice you to come back next week and the weeks hereafter as we touch into some more subjects that will progressively get more and more a little bit on the fringe until we get to the very end of the month of October. Thank you guys so much for humoring me tonight through setting through this as I went through it. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope to see you back here next week. Um, until I do, please submit any stories you might have to my wayward story at gmail.com. Please rate review and subscribe at your podcast player of choice. Please go over to the YouTube and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Guys, I don't just have the visual version of this over at YouTube. If you're listening on a podcast player right now, I don't just have the visual version of this at YouTube. I've got like almost a hundred other videos now of me on multiple adventures throughout my time out there exploring in the world. I've got review videos. I've got a lot of stuff over there that you guys might find of interest. That's um, youtube.com forward slash wayward stories. You can get to all those things. You can do everything that you can do. Submit stories, see the website, see my Instagram, see all the stuff if you just go to the website at waywardstories.com. Um, and I hope that you guys will do that. I want to hear from you more often. I need some constructive criticism. I want feedback. You guys get in touch with me. Um, until next week, until installment two of the spooky season, y'all be good to each other. Go out there and find something interesting to do. Go and find something that no one's ever found before and y'all be good to each other. Thank you.